Today's episode is brought to you by CradlePoint. The future of WAN is wireless, but a wireless connection is only as good as the edge. CradlePoint unlocks the power of advanced cellular through wireless edge solutions that are delivered the way you consume everything IT, as a service. Learn more about CradlePoint's cloud-managed LTE solutions at cradlepoint.com slash packetpushers. cradlepoint.com slash packetpushers. This sponsor wants you to know that open networking means more than just white box switching. Who's that? Cumulus Networks, data center networking for the open, modern data center. Visit cumulusnetworks.com to find out more. Welcome to Heavy Networking. I'm your host, Ethan Banks. And if you have no idea who I am and care, check my at EC Banks Twitter profile and you can kind of sort out the rest from there. Now, before we get to the show today, a little housekeeping. I know, housekeeping, right? We don't usually do that on Heavy Networking. Well, today is a housekeeping day. So exciting. Now, many of you know that Heavy Networking is the continuation of the podcast that back in the day was known simply as Packet Pushers, and this is the channel we started on back in 2010, and here we are almost 10 years later, and we've turned Packet Pushers into this network of podcasts, a podcast platform, if you will, for and by engineers. All the shows we run on Packet Pushers are for your professional career development. If you had no idea there was anything other than heavy networking, search for Packet Pushers in your podcatcher or check out packetpushers.net slash subscribe for the entire lineup of shows. The newest show that we have on the Packet Pushers Network is called Day 2 Cloud. I am co-hosting that with cloud consultant, published author, and plural site instructor, Ned Bellavance. And if you were a Data Knots listener and you're missing it now that it's gone, Day 2 Cloud should fill that hole in your commute. Ned and I are bringing you nerdy discussions related to anything that ties to operating IT in a cloud context. Looking at the lineup on our Day 2 Cloud calendar, we have shows coming up about Kubernetes, multi-cloud networking, the emergence of edge computing, cloud certifications, leveraging pipelines for infrastructure deployment, and more on all that's already in production. Another housekeeping item for you, Packet Pushers offers a weekly newsletter called Human Infrastructure Magazine. In it, we share with you what we think is worth your time reading as a busy IT professional, plus a feature article and a laugh or two. It's free. We don't sell your email address because we don't suck. So get him at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Another thing you might not know, we have a YouTube channel. It's at youtube.com slash packetpushersnetwork. And because it's come up recently, sometimes we do live streams on that YouTube channel and you can ask us questions or throw things at us, whatever makes you happy. The next live stream we have scheduled is for December 18th, 2019 at 1 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S. We'll go for an hour and a half or until we're sick of talking. It's kind of a meant to be a holiday show, general chat with the community, and we'll see how it goes. A couple of other things here, a little more housekeeping, we'll dive in today's show, I promise, I'm just about done. Uh, one, Ignition, that is our membership site. We price it to be affordable for most of you, we hope, 99 bucks a year. If you'd like to thank us for all the free stuff you've gotten over the years, yeah, sign up for Ignition. You're supporting us directly when you do that, and you're actually getting stuff too. We are publishing white papers, videos, courses, and more that we are not publishing anywhere else, and we're also paying smart folks, maybe you, to create content for Ignition. If that's interesting, hit our contact form on packetpushers.net if you think you'd like to get paid to share your knowledge. We've got Ignition content in production right now about Ansible for networking, understanding Cisco's SD access, and plenty more on the schedule. 
All right, last thing, we have a Slack channel for audience members, and that's by invitation only. You want an invite? Send a packet pushers at gmail.com a request with a link to your LinkedIn profile, or you can use the form at packetpushers.net slash contact. But but yeah, uh, LinkedIn, that's how we screen you. Uh, pretty much anyone is welcome to join the Slack group, but we are careful about vendor employees because we don't want our Slack group to be used for marketing and spam and stuff, you know. Today's discussion, joining me is Nick Broglio, a longtime contributor to the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Nick and I are going to discuss today uh, his network's recent adoption of segment routing. So, Nick, welcome back to Heavy Networking. Um, please set the stage for us here, Nick. Um, who are you, what do you do, and a little bit about your network, and uh, just to give us some background uh, about that before we get into the segment routing specifics. Yeah, so my name is Nick Broglio, as you mentioned. Um, been on Packet Pushers a, a, a number of, of times. Um, been doing networking since probably late 1996, uh, doing everything from service provider networks to enterprise security and research networking. I've kind of run the whole race when it comes to that. Um, currently employed by a, a large research network called the Energy Sciences Network that is um, the sort of circulatory system for the Department of Energy's science labs. Uh, so we do a lot of very interesting things, moving science data around uh, the world, actually. So it's an international network. Oh, it's international. Yeah, I, I saw a map um, uh, of ESNet, and I, I guess I thought it was more like North America, but you're saying it actually is global. Yeah, so we have currently, I believe it's four by 100 gig across the Atlantic Ocean, to different points in Europe. Uh, and there's a ring in Europe that connects uh, a handful of different places, London, Amsterdam, two points of presence at CERN. Uh, the main driver for that was to move data from the Large Hadron Collider to the U.S. science uh, facilities in, you know, in, the, in the continental U.S. Okay. And, and so, again, the kind of data you carry is science data. And I think a big point here is there's a lot of it. You're moving big, big, big chunks of data around to these different facilities for processing, right? Yeah, so it's a lot different than a commercial service provider in a several different ways, but the biggest, most noticeable uh, difference is that it's purpose-built for moving what uh, the industry typically calls elephant flows, so like huge chunks of single-stream data, whereas like a normal commercial internet provider or uh, uh, you know other enterprise-style network is typically using, is typically moving around small bits of data with small packet sizes and a whole lot of them. We move some of that, but the majority of what we move around is, is large you know, petabytes of data um, over long spans. So like a single flow might reach 60, 70, 80 gigabits per second in one flow. Now, is this a MPLS-based network? Is there IPv6 involved? Just give us a little sense of that. Yeah, so actually, interesting tidbit, we were um, Aaron's very first IPv6 allotment that was assigned. So our IP space, anybody that knows how to use the you know tools and stuff can go look, but it's 2001 colon 400. So um, it's been dual stacked for many, 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 many years. We don't discriminate between IPv4, IPv6. Anybody that's ever talked to me knows that I'm a very strong proponent of V6. I've taught the workshops for 
ever since, you know, <laughs> 2008 or something, you know, building IPv6 networks. You, you've for, taught it long enough to have to update the, uh, your, your instructing decks uh, a number of times. Than once. It continues to evolve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More than one time. Um, I like to think about it as, um, an IPv6 network with a legacy IPv4 support. But I think that, you know, it realistically, it's just a network that moves around all kinds of different data. And there, there is or is not MPLS involved? Yeah, it's an MPLS-based network. Um, we have a couple of interesting tools that we've built over the years. Uh, one is called Oscars, which is sort of a SDN before SDN was a thing. Um, and it, it is essentially a front end for provisioning uh, traffic engineered VPLS circuits between different points that are timed. So I can say I can go to this web interface as a client of ESNet, so like a site, and say I want to have you know 30 gigabits per second between my this this location and that location, and I need it to last for you know eight months, um, and it'll go and it'll calculate if it has the bandwidth to do that, and if it does, it'll provision it and it'll tear it down when it's done. Uh, you get to dictate, you know, bandwidth requirements. Uh, you can you can go so far as to define explicit EROs, so you can push out the entire path exactly the way you want it, um, and you can set the duration of it, uh, and so it'll tear it back down. Set the VLAN IDs. You know, it's it's very flexible. We've had it for a very long time. All right, that gives us a pretty good basis of your network, Nick, and what you've got going on there. I think, and, you know, at least at a high level, we didn't dive into every single detail, but because we want to focus on the segment routing aspect here, you, you guys have adopted, or I guess you're maybe in the process of adopting uh, segment routing. Uh, we've done some shows on segment routing before on uh, on heavy networking. In fact, we did one recently. We're recording this. It's November 2019. We've recorded one within the last few months with Juniper, with uh, Ron, uh, Monica, and got right into uh, uh, SR with, with some detail. Um, so there's some background shows there that folks who, if you don't know anything about segment routing, you can, you can listen to. But one thing we should clarify, Nick, what flavor of segment routing did you adopt? Did you go SRMPLS or SRV6? Anyone that's familiar with me will know that I've been in the doing SDN stuff since like 2009, dating back to like really cryptic early versions of OpenFlow and other things. So I'm always about looking at all the options on the table. Um, I don't want to write anything off um, for any type of bias or whatever, you know, just because we already know it or whatever. Like I like to look at all the options. And so being that that's sort of how I think, you know, we looked at all of the different options that were currently available. The one that really stood out the most to um, most of us was um, SRMPLS. I, again, I am a big, big fan of IPv6 and I wanted to spend some time looking at how that worked with, with SR um, but fact of the matter is that for our, the timeframes and the needs and requirements that we have, SRMPLS seemed to make the most sense to us uh, for a number of different reasons. One, you can do it now. You know, it's fairly well traveled. It's existed in some big networks, some very big high profile networks for quite some time, actually. Um, and there's, there's a, uh, I think if you go to segment-routing.net, there's some videos that were put up there for a uh, tech field day roundtable that I was a part of um, that uh, a handful of very large networks talked about their, their SR deployments. And that's 
pushing two and a half years old at this point. So, you know, the maturity of SR and PLS seemed to be uh, a little bit higher than, say, SRV6. Um, and then there's SRV6 Plus now, but that didn't even exist. Um, and the thing about... The thing about SR MPLS, you said you can do it now, as in you don't actually have to have a, a hardware upgrade to do SR MPLS. This is really software. As long as you've got the software support, you're there if you've got MPLS gear. Uh, for the most part, that's true. I mean, there, there's MPLS gear that just doesn't, that, that can't do it just due to ASIC limitations. And there's some really, really funky nuance there to what, you know, doing it, I'm air quoting here, you know, doing SR MPLS air quoted is one thing, but being able to f- scale it is another thing. Um, so say I've got, you know, vendor X and it's already running in PLS um, and it's, you know, however many years old, I can probably flash that with newer firmware that supports the protocols, but I may be limited to how well I can scale, how big I can scale that due to what's called the LSD, the label stack depth. So f- for us, we have some pretty deep requirements for that because we do explicit EROs, uh, meaning we define every single hop in the path. You can get away with not doing that, but the the method that we use uh, based on how our network needs to run is to do explicit EROs. So, so you, you, every hop in the path is in every network device and the links between those devices, if you've got options. Yeah, typically it's every network device. So like every node SID. Um, in, okay. In, yeah. A segment routing parlance, but it may be, you know, 20, you know, 20 labels deep. And there's really not a whole lot that does that. You know, I think they, they, wow. they, the older gear, you may see eight labels, uh, maybe 12. Some of the newer gear scales up to like 18. Um, but, but you, but you're right. You can turn it on now. And there are really distinct advantages to turning on SRM PLS, even if you're not doing PCE, uh, initiated and controlled LSPs. Um, even without that, it still has pretty noticeable advantages over, let's say, traditional MPLS signaling. For example, uh, if we want to, if we want to go down that rabbit hole, um, <laughs> well, I'm going to bring you back to the SRV6 rabbit hole, but let's go down this rabbit hole now. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, for example, uh, the fact of the the fact that you know, in a traditional MPLS network, you have, you know, your IGP, and then you have your label signaling, and then you have your services, your LSPs, or your, um, you know, or your L3 VPNs, or what have you on top of that. So it's like a sandwich of protocols. Um, and this is one of the complaints that I've heard, and I've, I've heard Greg talk about this before, too, is that, you know, it's, it's overly complicated, there's too many moving parts. And that's not totally untrue. Um, you know, there's a lot of pieces and parts and moving spinning plates that, that have to be in alignment for that to, for MPLS networks to run. Enabling SRV or uh, SRMPLS takes one of those completely out of the equation. So, you know, SRMPLS, you have, you know, your IGP, be it either OSPF, SR, ISIS, SR, and I, you know, either of them will work. And that also carries your label stack. So you don't even need LDP anymore. So there's one last piece, one less layer in that sandwich that needs to be um, remembered and engineered and exists for troubleshooting reasons. That's totally gone at that point. And in my mind, and me as someone who's operated big networks for a long time, that's a huge win, right? Because now I don't have to think about 
the, the dependency tree of distributing my labels because it happens as soon as I enable that TLV in the IGP. Yeah, well, so, so let me read that back to you again. For the the, the mechanism, we're, we're, the thing we're worried about here is 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 label distribution, and usually we'd use label distribution protocol to do that. They're locally significant between nodes in the MPLS core, and that's that's a thing that you have to worry about. That's a concern. But you're saying with segment routing, the IGP via TLVs can carry. Um, those labels and distribute them to the nodes. And if I remember right, those are globally aware uh, labels now. They're not merely locally significant. Everybody in the core has to understand those to be able to forward correctly. Um, if, and and tell, tell me where I'm wrong here. No, that's right. I think the only uh, thing I would add is that the, the, you know, the qualifier globally is sort of misleading. Um, that was confusing to me when I first started looking at it because globally means that it's not like you have PI address space, you know, that is globally unique across the entire internet. Your, your, your segment or your label stack is globally unique within your ecosystem. It's not isolated to a single node. Um, but no, that's, that's pretty much correct. Um, and, and for anyone that doesn't know, TLV is sort of like a module within a routing protocol. So like a, um, IPv4 would be a TLV and ISIS. IPv6 would be a TLV. SR would be a TLV. So it, it, it's the modularity, the plugin system for the uh, enabling different protocols and other distribution, other distribution of other metadata, I guess, within a routing protocol. Right, like ISIS didn't know anything about segment routing back in the day because it didn't exist, but because there's a TLV function, it can be extended to now carry uh, what's important for segment routing uh, within a newly defined TLV. Yeah. Yep. We we went down that rabbit hole. We understand what that's uh, gaining us. Let's go back to SRV6. Now, you mentioned you're defining every hop along the way, which... I think really puts a hole in SRV6 for you, even if you had hardware that could support it or or software that would scale big enough to, to deal with those nodes. Um, a lot of the presentations I've heard about SRV6 says, eh, you don't, not everybody in the path needs to know SRV6 because if it can't read the segment routing header, it's just going to pass it along unchanged until it gets to the next uh, SRV6 hop, at which point the header will be read and the operations performed that need to be performed. But that's a non-starter in your case. And if you were to actually try to use SRV6 for a path as long as 20 hops, the segment routing header would be indescribably huge. I mean, just massive. Yeah, I think you've hit the the, the key point there. And so let's tease that apart a little bit. So basically within an SRV6 packet, and people can look this up, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of documentation and, and drafts and stuff surrounding this, but you can kind of look at how the header is constructed, but the header is the key part of that statement. In order to process these headers, you have to be able to have the hardware that can, that you can stuff them into. So if I've got, you know, a, even a, let's say an eight uh, hop ERO that's eight 128 bit addresses that have to be shoved into a, a header. Very little hardware is going to be able to support that. And that was always the, that was always the sort of Achilles heel of, of SRV six. Like I, I want to love it. And I do, I think it's a wonderful idea, but I, I think that the execution of it, we're just not kind of not ready for it yet. The hardware doesn't do it. And so that's one of the reasons that um, SRV six plus has become a thing. Uh, and, 
for those that are curious about that, that's essentially mapping the V6 addresses in the ERO to a different location that's then referenced, which to me feels like it's unnecessary overhead. Well, we're trading in actual header overhead in, you know, in, in the form of bytes for now, process overhead and lookups that have to occur, which is asking a lot of the ASIC, I believe. Right. And it's also, it's also you know, operationally complicated, right? Because then you have to run two and then you have to have state between them and, you know, which you're probably going to have with a PC anyway, but... It feels a little lispy. Yeah. I mean, Kinda. it's it's just, it's one of those things that I just want it to mature a little bit more and I yeah. want to play with it in a lab a little bit. And I just don't think that that is, it's not, it's, it's currently not ready for that yet. I don't think it may be, I may be wrong um, because I've been primarily focused on SRM PLS at this point. Okay, everyone, this episode is on pause to briefly consider wireless WAN with today's sponsor, CradlePoint. CradlePoint understands that the future of the WAN is wireless, but a wireless connection is only as good as the edge. CradlePoint unlocks the power of advanced cellular through wireless edge solutions that are delivered the way you consume everything that is IT as a service. Reliable, elastic, simple to manage from anywhere. Maybe you've never heard of CradlePoint. Fair enough. CradlePoint is a global leader in cloud-delivered wireless edge solutions for branch, mobile, and IoT networks. And that means they have hardware you put on-prem that builds your WAN using wireless data services. Their boxes can be standalone or uplink to your router via an Ethernet port. There's lots of choices in their product line to support whatever architecture you have in place today or need to build tomorrow. Now, don't limit your thinking to just connecting buildings. Think about connecting anyone, anywhere. The CradlePoint NetCloud service delivered through routers with built-in LTE delivers an agile, pervasive, and software-defined wireless edge that connects people, places, and things everywhere over LTE. And if you're pondering the mysteries of 5G, yes, CradlePoint has you covered with a clear pathway to get you there. You manage your CradlePoint environment via their NetCloud Manager tool that offers secure onboarding of devices with zero-touch provisioning, exactly what you'd expect. And you can set up SD-WAN with CradlePoint 2, either with their own solution or as part of an SD-WAN solution you might already be rolling out. And maybe you're thinking about IoT and security. Yeah, CradlePoint's got you covered there. Their NetCloud Perimeter solution handles that. CradlePoint is an established company. More than 18,000 active enterprise and government organizations around the world rely on them to keep critical branches, points of commerce, field forces, vehicles, and IoT devices always connected and protected. Interested? Okay. So to learn more about CradlePoint's cloud-managed LTE solutions, visit cradlepoint.com slash packetpushers. One more time, that is cradlepoint.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to the podcast. I mean, SRV6 Plus is just being uh, talked about and it's in draft form and development in the IETF like this year as of 2019. I don't even think it. It's been a, been a few months since I checked, but I don't think SRV6 Plus has gotten out of draft state into any sort of an RFC. I'm fairly certain you're correct. The first I ever even heard about it was maybe like six months ago. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I like that there are options. Like having options is key, you know, and, and being able to sort of pick and choose and work with what fits best for your operational and needs and requirements, your operational overhead. And, and uh, you know, that's great for us. That is very likely SRM PLS. That's what we've spent the most time thinking about. And so I spent a significant amount of time uh, building it, breaking it, you know, just seeing how it works and pushing, 
pushing it through different lab scenarios and, and lots of time prototyping uh, in that space. Well, all right. What problems were you trying to solve that drove you to be investigating segment routing to begin with? Because in the setup to the show, Nick, you talked about a highly functioning network that even has some way cool, uh, special, unique SDM, that Oscar system that you were talking about that you built. Um, what is it that you were like, oh my gosh, yes, we need to uh, add segment routing to the mix here? Well, so, you know, we, we've been planning to, um, our network goes, for like every network, right? It gets refreshed. Um, and in looking for that, we started planning years ago, like literally years ago, the, the prototyping and planning started. Um, and it's underway right now. Basically, we wanted to take the things that we have now and extend them and make them easier um, where possible. And so, you know, a handful of us had spent a fair amount of time doing OpenFlow and other SDN deployments in production. And, you know, trying to take what we learned from that experience and say, like, how can we, how can we apply this? Like, what, what is the, what is the application for, you know, being able to do some of these more complicated things? Like, I want to build a circuit, you know, virtual circuit based on latency, right? Not necessarily hop counts. I want to build a virtual circuit based on you know, bandwidth availability and be able to move it if that changes like dynamically. I mean, the critical thing here being these are controller driven solutions where you're programming the, 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 the fib via a controller that's doing some sort of, you know, off core computation that allows you to do these unusual things. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's typically the, the mechanism that's used, but uh, you know, anyone that's ever deployed, let's say an open flow network, right. Where you've decoupled control plane and a controller over to the side that's doing all of those things knows, you know, where that works and where that doesn't, right? It's the right tool for some jobs. It's not the right tool for all jobs. Like in a wide area context, extracting the control plane out can get complicated very quickly due to round trip times of control plane packets. So if you think about it, like, um, let's say, I like to think about this type of thing, like spe- specifically OpenFlow as a chassis based switch where the controller is the RE or the soup or, you know, choose your nomenclature of choice. And then the, the network elements are line cards, right? What would happen if I took a supervisor and pulled it out and put it in California, but the line cards were in New York, right? So you can imagine what problems that may occur, you know, in the space of a continent for control plane traffic. So taking all of those interesting things that you can do with offloaded computational power that's probably going to be significantly more CPU than you have in a in a traditional uh, supervisor or routing engine or whatever and moving it out but not requiring it to have state for those things to continue to function is very appealing. It's yet another trade-off, right? You 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 are giving up the uh, in-path distributed algorithm that can react to some kind of a topology change, you know, immediately because it's right there and it knows and BFD notified it or whatever to a controller that's off to the side that can come up with a forwarding path that's based on anything you want, all the, like latency as you put up or whatever the unusual scenario is. But now that device is further away. So it, like everything, it's a trade-off. You're swapping out functionality for... Um, uh, latency or for, for distance, let's put it that way. The control plane's further away now and it's got its advantages and disadvantages. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, if we can get away with being able to say, uh, build a circuit based on, uh, you know, based on latency, for example, um, we do, we crunch all those numbers, you know, um, away from the network elements within a PCE, you know, a segment routing controller, it pushes out the LSP, but there's a control path that exists between the um, network element and the PCE, very similar to OpenFlow, except that if the PCE goes away, those continue to function, right? So in, you know, in a typical SDN world, you know, an OpenFlow world, if the controller goes away, like Mac learning stops and, you know, all kinds of things don't work anymore because you've, you've ripped out the, the control plane uh, of, of that network. Whereas if you do um, like an LSP that's calculated and provisioned via a path computational element, it gets pushed into the, the network element as a configuration via some kind of uh, standard protocol like uh, PSEP or NetConf in some cases. And it's actually configured on the devices in that case. So if the PC goes away, if for whatever reason you only have one, you know, which, you know, you want to do redundancy just because, um, but if for some reason you only have one or if your network gets bifurcated or whatever, you still have that LSP in place and it still functions. It still does all of its normal things. It's just not reporting back to the PC until it comes back up and you, and you can't do any other provisioning via the PC until it comes back. But there are a couple different mechanisms for pushing out LSPs. You can do, PCC or PCE initiated, PCE controlled, which is controller based, or you can do PCC initiated, PCE controlled, PCC being path computational client. So I can go and I can provision an LSP directly on like the ingress node of my, of a network, push out a label stack because you push the labels at the edge and it provisions that, that label stack, um, LSP across the network and then reports it back to the PCE. And the, so the PCE has knowledge of it, but it did not provision it. So there's a lot of advantages to doing it that way, right? That, that should be pretty clear, you know, based on the fact that if the computational element goes away, you still have essentially a fully functional network. So, so I'm hearing a couple of things here, you know, about why, why segment routing, if we just take a step back, you know, one is we've been able to trade in or trade out LDP for you know, segment routing uh, as the control plane. We don't have to maintain state within the core for all of our labels. Um, and the, the other is you're now using PCE, you have the ability to do, I'm going to phrase it fancy traffic engineering you can do kind of exotic LSPs to find exotic LSPs based on your own unique criteria. Is that, is that the core of it? Are there more issues that are worth discussing about why segment routing? Yeah, you kind of touched on one of them. Um, those are the big ones, right? Those are, those are uh, the, the shiny ones. Um, one of the other ones that is incredibly appealing, especially, and, and people that have run Big MPLS networks that do, you know, fairly complicated and granular traffic engineering will understand this. Um, RSVP TE is complicated, uh, and, and, it, and there's a lot of configuration overhead involved with it. So if you're doing extensive traffic engineering, the ability to sort of move away from RSVP TE is pretty appealing um, for a number of reasons. The first of which I just said, you know, it's a lot of complicated 
configuration on the devices. You have to keep track of each device's config and make sure they match, meaning each element has state for those traffic engineered LSPs. Being able to move away from that is a pretty big deal. And so one of the other advantages that SR has over, let's say, RSVPTE is that I don't need to keep state for any of that in any of the network elements except for the ingress node and the PCE. Would SR have completely replaced RSVPTE where you've been able to turn it down everywhere and you're exclusively segment routing? Is this a phased approach or are these like, ah, eh, we're going to keep them both and use SR for certain things and RSVP for other things? So if you're building a greenfield SR network, I would say don't even turn on RSVPTE. Just go straight to a PC controlled traffic engineering um, if you've got an existing RSVPTE-based network, then you'll have to phase it, right? It'll have to be a, a migration. Um, and that's the way that probably most people will do it because I don't know of a whole lot of people building giant greenfield networks that need traffic engineering. So they're, they're probably pulling out something else and putting in something new. Um, the nice thing is they can kind of run, they're, they're not incompatible, so you can run them both until you're done with one of them. All right. So now we've talked about the ability to do fancy traffic engineering. I want to get into some of those scenarios and what those look like. So one that pops to my head that a lot of people talk about when they talk about segment routing is service chaining. That is, I need these packets to move through these specific boxes for security reasons, or maybe it's load balancing, whatever it might be. Uh, can you talk through some of your scenarios of the, the traffic, what traffic engineering scenarios are met by SR, whether they're kind of plain and boring and predictable or, or fancy and exotic? I think phase one is pretty, pretty much fairly predictable. You know, it's all of the things that we, you know, that, that people want to use SR for. Um, in the fullness of time, my expectation is that moving, Traffic in and out of, let's say, DDoS scrubbers or NFV-based uh, security appliances would be, you know, kind of 101, hello world type stuff. Um, being able to sort of dynamically do that is really appealing. So if I say, you know, I've got one of our, one of our projects is to run um, Bro slash Zeek, whatever it's called today, the intrusion detection engine on um, our uh, transit links. So we have a very rich uh, peering infrastructure. We also have transit. Uh, so, you know, we've got a handful of places around the world that we get commodity internet access from, and that's, uh, that's to augment, you know, our, our uh, bilateral peering infrastructure. But if you look at where nefarious things come from, it's almost always going to be eyeball networks. So most of that is going to is going to come in over transit links. So putting a, a sensor there that's going to be able to see those events happen and do triggering based on that, which is another project that I've worked on. Um, not the bro stuff. There's other people doing that, but the triggering and the you know correlation of events uh, and then being able to take action based upon those things is really super appealing, right? So if I say, I've got an alarm for, you know, whatever, a DDoS, let's say, because that's, you know, that's a buzzword and people like it. And I see that coming in over transit links. I can say, take this traffic and shove it through a scrubber dynamically based on some middleware that's been written that, you know, eats the alarm, says, I know what the alarm is, 
teases it apart, grabs the relevant pieces, and then pushes out some configuration based on, you know, what it's pulled out of that alarm to move that traffic through a scrubbing system or to an analyzer, uh, you know, for further, um, or, or, or even span it, right? Like just mirror it somewhere else. Um, so th- those are kind of the appealing things for service chaining. You know, the, the scrubbing one is, is probably the most appealing to me personally, because it gets a lot of, uh, it gets a lot of attention. It gets a lot of questions. You know, it's one of those things that you don't want to have to manually deal with it because anyone that's ever dealt with a, with any type of DDoS attack manually never, ever wants to do it again. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you, you're chasing a moving target at, at best. Yeah. At best. <laughs> It's usually not a great day. Uh, what about um, uh, like link loading? So let me give you a, uh, an SD-WAN example. That's one of the attributes of an SD-WAN system. You can take that end node, plug in a bunch of different circuits, and depending on the uh, SLA that's required for a particular flow, forward it across whatever circuit can deliver that. And you can you can kind of end up with some pretty good distribution of use across those links. It's not an all or nothing as, as a lot of uh, engineers are for, that are familiar with routing protocols know how best path converges, typically using one link. SD-WAN says, ah, I'm going to spread this out and use a lot of different links, all depending on what the flow needs. Uh, could Do you foresee being able to do some sort of traffic engineering like this based on, basically based on real-time network um, activity, what's really going on out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I kind of talked about this a little bit. Greg and I were going back and forth, if you remember, in the weekend edition, um, where he was talking about, SD-WAN and I was talking about the what the service providers were planning to do. And th- that's exactly this, right? So it's conceptually very similar, except for it's totally abstracted away from like the end customer. So I can create link bundles um, using Anycast SIDs. A great example of this is our transatlantic links, right? So I've got X transatlantic links that, uh, you know, they all terminate on different routers. Traditionally, you know, you'd say, oh, I want to aggregate links together. They need to all drop on the same chat, the same chassis, or I have to get really funky and do like multi-chassis lag, which whatever, you know, some people probably do that. But being able to say, distribute that across four links that all end on different equipment that are in geographically very diverse locations on say a continent is a pretty big deal, right? So if I have a bunch of traffic and I notice like that the particular link is more loaded than the other one, I can shift that to an Anycast uh, SID based bundle. It's, it helps spread across the traffic a little bit better. So it's, it's conceptually very similar to the SD-WAN model. Um, and that's one of the big draws is, you know, being able to do, any cast SIDs and some of the other link load balancing stuff, or, or even, you know, even simple, more simple is you can say, you know, move this, move this particular traffic to a less loaded link, right? It may have a longer, it may have a longer round trip time, but you don't care about that. Right. So I can move this bulk traffic over to this other link that has less load on it that may have a longer round trip time, but really all I care about is bulk transfer. So being able to sort of dynamically do those type of things is really, really appealing. And again, this goes back to PCE, path computation um, element. So th- there's this magic controller that's sitting off to the side here that's 
enabling all of this fancy stuff to happen. Because again, in the segment routing world, you're building a label stack at the ingress device and, and putting that label stack onto the packet and then sending it on its way through the core and it gets all of the um, the, the labels gets uh, popped along the way until it comes out the other side, having followed the path that was prescribed to it. But that, again, in your application, you don't have to use PCE, but in your case, you're using PCE to do all of that. So for folks that are unfamiliar, what's going on here? You've got this thing, this controller sitting off to the side and how maybe we should break this down. How does it know about the network topology that's there? How does it know when a link goes down uh, as it is off to the side? Is it peered to the network somehow? Give us some basics. Oh, this is good questions. Um, okay, so the PCE needs to understand, as you alluded to, the entire topology of the network in basically real time. So what it will do, and different PCEs have different mechanisms for doing this, but they all function in a very similar way. They either form an adjacency with the IGP. So they operate as a pseudo network element. So let's say I have an adjacency with my two P- my two PCEs, you know, bicoastal, however you want to do it, right? They form an adjacency with one of the actual network elements. Um, let's say we'll go down the ISISSR example. So they have real time updates on link state of the network and, and so they'll understand like, oh, this path is down. I need to move the traffic or what have you. And then there's also the PSEP um, protocol that does communication. So that in some cases, based in certain vendors do topology discovery using that. In some of the cases, you'll have BGPLS. But in all the cases, the, the PC BGPLS is BGP link state. So they basically have added a, an NLRI for link state. Uh, that you can share with, you know, with a, with a network element. But in all cases, the, the PC operates as a pseudo network element. So it understands real time topology changes. It understands what's going on in the network. It can, it can pull out bandwidth data, latency data, you know, all kinds of interesting little factoids about the, about the current operational state of the network ecosystem. And it uses all that data to uh, press against its logic to move traffic around based on whatever you've defined as your policy. We interrupt this program for a very special bulletin. Yeah, I always want to say that. Anyway, at the top of this episode, I mentioned that Cumulus Networks is pointing out that there's more to open networking than just buying a white box switch and throwing a NOS on it. Open networking and white box, these are not interchangeable terms. Yeah, open networking includes white box, but from the Cumulus point of view, open networking also includes automation, efficient operations, flexible choice, and scalability. That is, you're not supposed to have to compromise your network's capabilities when you transition from a legacy network architecture to an open one. Cumulus offers automation via native integration with tools including Ansible and Salt. You gain efficiency because under the hood, the Cumulus NAS is... Linux, as in real Linux, you can interact with in the way that you're used to, so you manage your switches in much the same way as you manage your servers. You also get flexibility because you have a wide range of vendors and switching platforms Cumulus Linux runs on, and of course, Cumulus scales. The earliest Cumulus data center architectures were all about scalability. So don't conflate open networking and white box. You should expect the open networking story to be more broad. Your operations and insights should live up to a high standard of excellence. Wait a minute, I just said 
insight a second ago, and I didn't even mention NetQ, which is Cumulus's tool to give you actionable insight about what's happening on the network from the host to the switch. All the pieces are there to build your data center, private cloud, and even your campus. To learn more about open networking, head to cumulusnetworks.com open. That's cumulusnetworks.com open. And we thank them for being a Packet Pushers sponsor. Your regularly scheduled episode returns in three, two, one. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that in, in the case of ISIS or OSPF, everybody that participates in that has the same link state database. It knows everything that's going on out there. Every node does because if one node didn't know what was going on at a different part, it would compute things differently and they all need to come to the same conclusion. Uh, in, in, we're backing out here. We're talking about some more exotic things about how we're computing path, but you know, in an OSPF or ISIS by default, everybody's got to have the same database so it can perform the same calculations and come to the same conclusions. Um, in this case, we're talking about the PCE having an ISIS uh, SR adjacency to the rest of the network and being able to see all of the link state updates that are going by and, and understand, therefore, what the network topology is and be informed when uh, there is some kind of a topology change. And that, that's how it's keeping up with what's going on. So that should be relatively real-time, yeah? Yeah, it's pretty much real-time. Um, and, you know, I've, I've tested a bunch of different mechanisms for doing it, and they all are pretty similar. Like you said, you know, ISSSR has the link state database, BGPLS, it's just basically taking that database and putting it into a BGP peering. So it's functionally similar. Um, and, and it's basically real time. You know, it, it operates as fast as you would expect any other link state event to happen. Right. So if you have a big network, it might take milliseconds longer or something, but it's, it's very fast. Now, I didn't want to diminish what you were saying about uh, PCEP. You said some vendors will use PCEP and pull in topology information that way. So for, for folks that are unfamiliar with that, can you give us the high level on how, how that works? Uh, we were peering between PCE, the controller, and one of the network devices running PCEP as a, as a protocol? Yeah. So the design is usually that you have, let's say you have 10 routers, of those 10 routers, you're, you're, you're going to create, a, let's say, a BGPLS peering with your controller on two of them, you know, that are geographically diverse. That's where you get your link state database. Then from each of the 10 nodes, you'll create a, a PSEP peering or adjacency, depending on your, you know, whatever the nomenclature is of that particular vendor. That gives you the ability to push out the configuration. So PSEP stands for path computational element protocol, I believe. And that's just kind of a control channel. And, you know, when you go and you look at your uh, network element, you can say, you know, show PSEP adjacency or whatever it is. And it'll show you like, hey, I have, um, I have PSEP adjacencies with two controllers, right? And they're in a normal state and I'm passing information back and forth. Same goes for your controller, right? You should be able to go in there and look and see, okay, I have PSEP adjacencies with, or PSEP peerings with every single node, which allows me to make changes everywhere. Got it. it it's, your, it's your management plane connection back to the controller. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yep. So it's it's not uh, me on a CLI over SSH. It's not uh, uh, you know, REST comp or net comp. It's PSEP in this case. Yep. And it's a defined protocol. There's an RFC for it. You can go and look it up and, and read about it. It's actually pretty slick. 
so you've got this um, PCE connection. You mentioned geographic diversity. So that's something we should dive into here. What does my controller architecture look like considering you're running a global network? You need your PCE uh, device, that controller, to be able to talk to everybody globally. And you need to have some sort of redundancy there because of bifurcated networks and these sorts of things. So how do you, how do you think about these things? How do you deal with um, a distribution of PCE? Yeah, this was a this took a long time, um, and I spent a significant amount of resources figuring out how we wanted this to work. Um, I was tasked with this uh, quite a while ago, and so you know it's it's one of those things that I racked my brain on for a quite quite some time. Uh, and having done a fair amount of um, work in doing redundant models for like firewalls and things like that. I, you know, I was familiar with the pitfalls and advantages of active-active versus active-passive and, you know, pulling apart the, the nodes and, you know, the round-trip time between them and things like that. So, you're right. Basically, what you want is you want to have N plus one redundancy of your controller. You want those controllers to have the same information all the time because if you don't have the same information in them, then troubleshooting is very difficult. It causes weird to diagnose problems or hard to diagnose weird problems. And it's just generally, you know, kittens die and the engineers have a bad day. <laughs> Not weird, Nick, fun, fun problems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're, fun, they're fun like a week after. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, figuring out how to deploy those, it, it, you know, and there's commercial options for this too. You know, there's a number of different, uh, vendor options you can choose from. There's fewer open source options to work from, but of the of the ones that are available, you know they all have an answer for you know how am I going to build this redundantly, right? Because in a, in a WAN environment, anyone's ever built a WAN environment will know that you you know if things blow up and you don't have good out of band access, it's truck roll. Truck rolls are expensive and time consuming. You know, and so you want to be able to say, I want to be able to take this controller down, which is say my master controller. Um, I'm probably not going to want to run an active active because the state between the two, you know, my experience with that has been sort of spotty in, in firewall land and in an IPS land. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about it as an active passive or, you know, uh, active standby type of uh, deployment and you want to be able to cleanly fail those back and forth. So you, you want one master, however many members there might be in, in a cluster or at an active passive uh, pair, there'd just be the two, but you want one device to be, uh, have everything be current and then another one take over if you need to do you know, that maintenance, you, you, you don't want active, active. It sounds, it sounds like to correct me if I'm wrong here. Well, I mean, if it works great, then sure. Um, but you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna discount it as something that, that would never be deployed because if it works magically and, you know, and it's, and it's efficient, you know, great, I'll take it. Um, the model that I'm typically looking at is uh, like, like you said, one master and in amount of standbys. You don't need like a cluster for scaling. Like you don't need, oh gosh, there's so much computation going on in this network that, um, you know, that I've got to have just a, you know, a massive amount of compute sitting there. And so I've got to go active at, you don't need that. It's right. more, you, you just need the redundancy. The resiliency is the big concern. 
Yeah, redundancy and resiliency, because if you've deployed a PCE that doesn't have the computational power to do the things you need to do on your network, then you didn't right size it from day one. Now, three years out, you may find that, no, I'm running so many LSPs, I need to upgrade the hardware or whatever. And that's, you know, just normal lifetime replacement type stuff. But, you know, ideally, the way I think about things personally is that I figure out what I think I'm going to need and I buy one level up from that because it's going to be in the network probably two years longer than I am forecasting it to be. This, I mean, this is all like experience-based stuff, right? Most folks get that, that, you know, if I've got an upgrade path and I say my mean time before replacement is five years, it's probably going to be seven. So, Right size it, meaning, you know, you, you look at what you think it's going to be and then make sure that you can accommodate for any type of fluctuation, you know, in that time frame. But, but to kind of get back to what you were saying, I want, you want to have the, the redundancy and resiliency. It's not necessarily computational power, right? Because only one of them, in theory, is going to be doing the, the computational intensive tasks Unless you find something that does active-active, you know, in a stellar fashion. For my, for my mind, I, I like the active standby model. Um, it's tried and true. It always works. It's easy to diagnose. You know which one's master for which thing because there's only one. And, you know, you do fail testing. So, that's the other thing is with any type of um, active standby you really, really need to do regular failover testing. And most people don't do that. So if I've got a master, you know, master standby firewall cluster and I'm not failing that back and forth every X amount of like every month or something in a maintenance window, then I'm probably setting myself up for some kind of weird problem later that I'm not going to know about until it shows up. I've digressed. (laughs) <laughs> you digressed a bit, but let, let's bring it back to this. One of the one interesting point here about this redundancy is the geographic distribution. So, do you have uh, an active passive pair sitting in a you know a central uh, pop somewhere, or did you like put one West Coast US, one East Coast US? How did you do it? So that's still underway. Um, my guess is that it will be n plus one, meaning there'll be one. Uh, West Coast, one East Coast, maybe one Europe, but that's still sort of to be determined. Uh, the testing that I've done uh, for this so far has been all in an enclosed area, but you know you can do creative things with uh, TC to uh, impart latency between things. So you can sort of simulate. I have a 200 millisecond round trip time between them by using creative Linux tools. So essentially you take a, you know, what's my round trip time between San Francisco and New York, and then apply that to the traffic control in your lab. So you can say, I want this to look exactly the same as it would if I'm going across the country, build it that way. And then um, you can, you can really get a very accurate view of what it will look like in production in that manner. Yeah, there's that old uh, WANM, WAN emulator tool that's out there. I hear that code base still works, even though I don't think anyone's touched it for about five years or something like that. There's, are there other tools out there as well that pop to your mind that you can divulge? Uh, just the Linux traffic control stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just push, you can push that stuff into the Linux stack just directly. Or if you put a Linux box between them, you can, you can do that. 
Um, it's pretty straightforward to do. You know, I, I tend to take the path of least resistance for things like I don't want to reinvent wheels if I don't need to. So, you know, I know the Linux stack fairly well. And if you, if you use the TC tools within, you know, within a Linux distribution, you can do some really funky stuff. You can tell it to drop, you know, every eighth packet if you want to weird things Uh, like that. Another point we should raise here, Nick, um, PCE and PCEP, these are, are standard um, standards-based protocols. Vendors have a lot of products, and they are not unique to segment routing. That's the context in which we've been using them to uh, program the label switch paths that are um, you know, defining our, our, our segment route in this case. But you could be using PCE to do a lot of other things as well. Yeah, um, I haven't done that, but it's definitely much more... Um, feature rich than you can do all kinds of different stuff with it. And, and, and to that end, you can do a lot of the things with a, you know, without a PCE as well. If you have your own, you know, if you've got an in-house development team, you can, you can develop your own uh, topology awareness toolkit and pull that out of the network at regular intervals using, you know, standard mechanisms like, like the PCEs do and you can do traffic engineering based on like Ansible. You can push your changes out. It doesn't have to be PSEP. I can push LSPs out and label stacks out from in any mechanism I really want to. I mean, segment routing is, is flexible enough. You can actually, if you can run the SR stack on a node, like on a, like on a compute node, you can push a label stack from a node to another node across the world, assuming you allow that you know, within your network. Well, making the point there that I don't actually have to have a controller and be doing exotic things to get a SR LSP label stack pushed into the, you know, the ingress router. I can, I think I could code them in manually if I wanted to, right? I could do some ugly things like that. Yep, you can. And in fact, if you, if you the, the segment-routing.net videos that I mentioned, um, Microsoft does a very interesting talk where they explain at a high level how they're using segment routing because their data centers are all connected via a backbone that they run and own, and they use segment routing to move load around. Um, but they've written their own PCE and their own you know, traffic engineering solutions that run exclusively to their network. Because I, I asked them, like, how are, you know, back channel, I asked, how, you know, how are you doing these things? Well, we, they, they said, we've written our own stuff to do all this so they're not even like they they found that they at the time couldn't find a commercial tool that did the things they wanted them to do and it's microsoft right so they have an army of developers and they said okay here's the needs and requirements go and you know x amount of people wrote it and that's that's what they use so they 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 weren't real uh verbose about you know the inner workings of it because you know it's probably trade secrets or whatever but you know, the video is worth watching because it explains some of the power of being able to do those things. And they're not using a commercial PC at all. Let me run a failure scenario by you, Nick, uh, something that, uh, that we didn't cover sooner, but it just popped in my head as uh, definitely worth talking about. Let's say um, the PCE has lost touch with the network because reasons, and I have a failure on the network. Is there fast reroute or some kind of a, you know, a mechanism like that that allow the network to keep soldiering on without having to go back to the controller for a new computation to figure out what happens next? Yeah, there's some pretty extensive uh, rerouting options. So you've got things like um, T2 
TILFA, FR, so topology independent loop free. free something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We, we, we talked about that in that show with Ron Bonica, I believe that I referenced earlier. That's one of the really uh, big advantages, right? So you can do this very fast failover of pre-computed paths. Um, there's also the notion of being able to find path failures extremely quickly. So folks that are familiar with uh, BFD as a protocol for detecting link failures uh, will probably understand that uh, or understand the SBFD, uh, which is a segment routing mechanism. It may be available in, in regular LSPs as well. I'm not sure. But it, so basically running BFD inside the LSP so that it will understand uh, more quickly when it fails and you can query for, you know, a pre-computed path or you may already have a pre-computed path pushed down that it fails over to. So the, the fast failover and the, um, you know, loop free type of, of uh, LSP movement is, is, a, is one of the big selling points of, of SR as well. You guys pushed segment routing in, into your network alongside of whatever else might have been there, or I'm, I'm assuming there was this transition phase, and and maybe you're still living with things like RSVP TE still out there. You said that that's you know possible to do. Uh, are there any cautions you'd give people, or, or you know things that you learn? Okay, we turned on segment routing, and we unexpectedly had this issue or that issue. So right now, the biggest. Um the, the biggest piece of advice I would give would be, you know, lab all your stuff up. You know, if you're, if you're going to scale something up this large and you're going to make a change this big, then lab it up, you know, spend an extensive amount of time figuring out what those things are. I didn't notice a whole lot of, you know, weird edge cases. It was more just like the, the learning curve of understanding the protocol interactions. And it's really the same as any other, you know, protocol change, right? You're just taking one, one mechanism and, and changing out how it's executed for another way of doing it. There are a couple of things that came up that were not showstoppers, but we're like, Oh, that's interesting. Different vendors have different uh, label ranges that you can use. So again, like you said earlier, you know, you're defining this global label stack range uh, that exists within your network and it's the same and it's unique. Different platforms have different requirements for that. Say one vendor can use this range of labels for its uh, global label stack. This vendor uses a different Interesting. range. And if you're running a multi-vendor network, then that is something that you definitely need to think about and lab up because it will pop up and you'll be like, why is this not working? Yeah, this could make it, you know, vendor interoperability now raises its ugly head. So, for example, I've been working with um, iOS XR to do some segment routing lab stuff and just kind of kind of following the directions, you know, stand up the lab. Here's your range. You know, they don't talk about if you're using this other vendor, their range might be different. That's not a thing that actually comes up because, of nope. course, you're using the same OS everywhere. Well, yeah, but you're not. Um, yep. <laughs> so that, that's a real interesting thing to raise. I mean, are there other things like that that you ran into that might be um, problems for vendor interoperability? That was the biggest one um, because it was just, I totally didn't think about it. Um, I just kind of assumed that the label stack range was the same, you know, it was whatever I wanted it to be, but that's not the case. 
Oh, and that, that should be one of those things you should count on. I mean, I'm sitting here like, I just want to slam my head into my keyboard right now thinking about that. I mean, come on, guys. This has been hammered out in the IETF for a while. You all couldn't agree on what the global label range was going to be? Come on. Yeah, I mean, I think the nice thing about it is that it's usually pretty well documented, right? So if you if you make the assumption that it's just going to work, then, you know, you may, you know, run into a headache for half a day until you go look at the docs, right? Because I like to I like to build things. I like to peruse docs, then I like to play, and then I like to reference the docs later. So yes. if I would have gone in and just, you know, and then I, if I would have gone in and read everything and then did it, it, it wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, but it's so hard to read the docs from front to back in the beginning because you don't actually know what's important and what's not. It's it, I do the same thing. I like kind of, you know, get the big picture, you know, glancing through docs do some work and go, okay, I ran into this issue and that issue and the other thing. And then I go back to the docs and then dig more deeply to address those things that I ran into. Cause now I got a purpose. Now I got a reason to go find that information. It's much easier to focus and retain. Right. And I find, and that's how I do almost everything. And, and I have a very specific reason for that. And I'm digressing again, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let you stop me. The, <laughs> the reason that I do that is because I find that when things don't work, I learn them much more deeply by backtracking and then reverse engineering the whole process. So I force myself to go through and learn all these weird esoteric details by not going and reading everything first, right? Because you're, you're very, like I always say that when I build something, I'm not going to trust it until I break it. And that's built into that process for me because it's almost never going to work right out of the box. If it does work right out of the box, I'm very apprehensive about it because then I haven't seen it at its worst. I know exactly what you mean. It, it feels fragile if it works right out of the box to me. Like surely something's going to break and I, because I haven't broken it before, I don't know what those things are. I can't have designed around them because I'm, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a, a way of, of breaking out those unknown unknowns in a, in a way that is safe, you know, because you're, you're, hopefully not doing that in production, right? You're hopefully doing that in a lab of some kind. You say that, but... Well, I mean, we've all done it, you know? <laughs> Sometimes production's what it takes to actually show things. Oh, which I, which reminds me of another question I really wanted to ask you. You were talking about lab stuff. If I'm standing up segment routing in my lab and I'm using virtual routers from, from my vendor of choice to do that, are there any shortcomings I need to be aware of where, yeah, on a virtual router, it behave like this, but when you actually get it on hardware, there are these caveats I got to be concerned about. So far, I haven't noticed much of that. Um, and I've done an extensive amount of work in the virtual labs. Um, and at, some of it's actually, you know, published out there. Uh, but the for the most part, you know, the protocol stacks are, are pretty solid and I haven't noticed too big of a difference. The one thing that I did notice is that, and this is expected, right? This is, shouldn't be a surprise, is that older hardware may not function in, it may not be able to handle some of the, some of the protocol requirements. So if you have like a really old device and you put the brand new uh, operating system on it, the new NOS uh, on it that may have some segment routing stuff, there may be some caveats in that space, but that's the same for really anything. Now, are you talking about you know, really old hardware trying to deal with that label stack depth problem you highlighted earlier, or or just broadly, this is the NOS version I need that happens to contain the segment routing code, but there's other stuff in that NOS that that old box is going to choke on? 
Both. Um, so I did run into a, a problem where I loaded the the newest operating system uh, onto some old hardware, and the, the the line cards were just too old to uh, to run it, and they just wouldn't come up. Um, but again, if I would have read the release notes, I probably would have known that, which I didn't do at that time. Because, <laughs> because yeah, why would you? Well, right? it was the lab, and it was a right. it was a it was a beta version of the operating system, so I knew there were going to be some caveats. But I figured oh, I'll yeah. try to boot it up and see what happens, and you know, it's typical stuff. But do you think you'll you'll move in an SRV six direction over time as that matures, or do you think you'll be pretty happy with SRMPLS for the long haul? Um, I think we'll. I, I think you know, only time will tell, right? Uh, but you know, we have a very uh, very um, well-traveled and, and well-seasoned set of engineers that know MPLS. And so it's an easy operational transition to move between those things. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense if SRV six, you know, becomes amazing and rainbows and bacon and everything, it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll play around with it. I will almost certainly lab it up and look at it and, see what it does and what it doesn't do and how it operates. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I like to revisit things a lot. So that's one of the beautiful things about technology and networking in particular is, you know, if you don't like the way it's working now, just wait six months and try it again. <laughs> you know, it didn't used to be that way, but it seems like the last, you know, five, three years, especially it's every time we turn around, there's something new going on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, Nick, I think we've kind of beat this into the ground, man. We've been talking for over an hour here, which I looked at the recording time. I was like, wow, we've been talking over an hour. Okay. So, <laughs> fantastic conversation, man. How do people follow you on the internet? Do you have a blog or a book or a Twitter account? Anything you want to promote, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I've got a Twitter. It's uh, at Forwarding Plane. I'm on there once in a while. I've got a blog that is woefully neglected. And, you know, I'm, I'm around on some of the public slacks. I'm on the packet pusher slack and some of the other ones as well. So just Google for my name and you'll, you'll find me somewhere. Um, I'm not terribly great at responding in timely manners, but uh, I always get around to it. Thanks, Nick. That's uh, Nick Baraglio. And uh, thanks to you very much for appearing on Heavy Networking. And thanks to all of you that are out there for tuning in. If you have a suggestion for future shows, or if you'd like to be on a future show, because you got something cool like Nick just talked about, you got your own project or new technology or thing that you deployed and you had some lessons learned and you're willing to talk about it publicly. Hey, we'd love to hear all about that stuff. You can tweet us at Packet Pushers. You can fill out the contact form at PacketPushers.net if you like, or just email us directly, PacketPushers at gmail.com. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.